Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to another edition of A Piece of Cake and we have our special resident guest today with us, Mr. Brother Ustad Ilyas Karmani. But before we get into welcoming Ilyas, it would be wrong for me not to point in the blue corner over to that gentleman over there and let him introduce himself. So, Assalamu alaikum. Wa, wa alaikum assalam. This is obviously Abdurrahim Green. And uh, and over there in the, I don't even know, oh my God. I'm going to just go and kick the dog, excuse me. <laughs> As he goes to not kick the dog, which he doesn't have in his house, I'm sure it's a cat. Um, we are really pleased to have Ilya on this occasion. We felt that we needed to have uh, more experience and insight. I didn't. Into... I didn't. I didn't kick the dog. I don't kick dogs. Just, just. No, I, 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 no, well, I defended you, Abraham. I said you don't even have a dog. Uh, I don't think if it's, unless it's, it's outside. It's my mum's dog. It's my mum. I'm in my mum's house, and it's her dog. Oh, mashallah. So there is so a dog, it, and it's it, it loves house. me. Like if I, she's a bit like my mum. If I leave her for long, she starts whining and squealing, and like she's sick. She's come back again. Mm. <laughs> anyway, yeah, go on. Anyway, no problem. And Sorry I throw on the screen, and it looks like I'm kissing someone. Yeah, you're frozen, bro. Bro, you're, you're got, not being able to hear anything. Got some like... serious bush action going on. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, give up. <laughs> bro, I've got, I got a I've got nice, I've got a nice, nice pouting lips there. Can you hear me though? I can oh, hear you. We can hear you. We can hear you, mate. Yeah, everyone, look at that pout. Kissable lips, not for you guys. Don't worry. I'll come out. I'm going to come out and come back in, inshallah. Mm -hmm. All right, bro. All right. So, look, uh, uh, Sheikh, you know, I think I understand last week you had, as usual, quite a provocative point that you made around the fact that, yeah. you know, we need to reframe the way that we look at mental health. And interestingly, That's Islam it. does that. Islam does that because people don't seem to realize we have our Islamic psychology tradition that is 1400 years old. And it uh, predates any notions around Western psychiatry, Western mental health and conceptualizations around that. And so that is a start point of how we reframe mental health. And, it, and the way that it reframes mental health is really as in the same way it looks at disability, it takes a social model, which is basically that everyone has challenges. Everyone has mental health fluctuations and oscillation in their states from ups and downs like iman goes up and down and the psychological yeah. state also goes up and down yeah. and we're trying to maintain a consistency through that so it sees it more as a challenge rather than as something which is you know pathological exactly. or something which is uh you know cannot be overcome and you know one of the most amazing things and i i did this morning i was doing a two-hour workshop on this for practitioners you know, one of the most amazing things about Islam and the way that it looks at psychology and mental health is that truly, yeah. truly, it is so groundbreaking. It's so, uh, you know, ahead of its time 1400 years ago. The Prophet, how he told us. But yeah. I just want people to, just one point, just throw it open before we back. You know, when Ayub was tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he basically gave shaitan a free reign, free reign to run at him and do whatever he wants. He said, he said two things. You can take everything away from him except two things. His mind and his heart. Okay. Yani the, the mind and the soul. These are the two things you can. So the point here is this. Ayub had everything taken away. His physical, he was in a state of total physical paralysis. But he still had mental faculty. 
and spiritual connection and higher purpose. And I think mm-hmm. this is really important because Islam has hifz al-aql. Protection of the mental state is a maqasid of the sharia for that very, very same purpose. Because without, if we impair the mental state and if we have mental incapacity, this has a direct impact on our spirituality and our iman. So we may, so Islam is concerned about protecting the mental state as much as possible. Yeah, and I think the the thing, the interesting thing about the conversation last week was we were coming at it from two angles, and I, I suspect that we came at it from my particular point of view. I was really thinking a little bit, a little bit more about how do we interact and treat people with mental health problems, right? That was my perspective, right? How do we look at them? How do we view them? Whereas I suspect that a lot of our listeners were more concerned about themselves, right? How do I deal with my mental health problems, which is not really, I mean, I sort of was coming at it from that angle. We were coming at it from that angle a bit, but I was more, you know, I was more interested in how do we react to people? How do we treat people with mental health problems? How do we behave towards them? Because I think part of the problem is that we, you know, there is a tendency to look at people with mental health problems as being somehow separate and dysfunctional mm-hmm. from society. And that I have a real problem with. And we raised that in our little chat beforehand, right? Um, that's really, really problematic, okay? that I think that whole attitude, this is what I have a real problem with. And, and like, like I was saying, my real issue is with the lens through which we look at these things. What is normal? Who defines what is normal? This is the conversation. We did discuss this last week. Who decides mm-hmm. what's normal? Yeah. I think, right? I think um, Abdurrahim, yeah. And to, to, to basically further what Abdurrahim was saying as well, I think we need to look at um, and consider in the wider context the stereotypes and perceptions that have been placed on those among us who have issues of mental health, genuine issues of mental health. And now I will come back from um, uh, um, uh, ethnicity perspective, again, including white ethnicity. Abdurrahim, you would know that those who were more eccentric uh, with idiosyncrasies from the white communities would either be taken as something of an amusement uh, or frowned upon and not yeah. taken seriously and, and marginalized. That's one aspect, and you can speak to that better than I can. I'm just talking about experiences I saw as a Brit and amongst friends of mine, okay, who mm-hmm. um, were in and out of institutions. For black ethnicities, black communities, it could be that, but it could also be life-threatening. And right. we've seen so many cases of black people being killed, murdered in custody, beaten by police trying to to calm them and control them thinking that their hyperactivity hyper normality um response which was out of fear okay some sometimes that's how the mental illness came out and they reacted out of fear they were treated so violently as well they were putting down an animal okay and were killed and we've got countless stories of that of footballers um, famous uh, personalities, the less famous, some of them unknown. Now, in a, the, the, looking at us as Muslims now as well, you'll see that if a Muslim uh, does an act of violence, 
it's immediately labeled through a prism or lens of terrorism. But if it's a white ethnicity, um, mm -hmm. someone of white mm -hmm. background, the, the psychological issue, the mental health issue is looked at immediately to divorce them from any acts of terrorism, unless of course, they profess to be Muslims. So this is a very, very serious matter. And the individuals who reached out to me before last week's show and since last week's show, and they say that some of them have been discussed with their children, because when we look at our children today, young adults, teenagers, especially with the pandemic that has, has, has riven across um, societies, we've seen a perpetuation of mental health crisis. And before I hand over to you and Ilias again, only the last two days, last 24 hours, I met a brother, British brother, mashallah, doctor, um, and he visited me here in Dubai. His parents are here. And we were speaking, and his father is a brilliant mind, a brilliant surgeon, 74 years old, uh, obviously retired. But he mentioned one thing to me, which shocked me, because he doesn't share these things with me. Um, and I won't go into too much detail as to who he is, but he said, watching his father and his brilliant mind deteriorate to the extent that he has now got the onset of dementia, dementia, especially over the last year. And then today, family members were speaking to another elder family member of, of mine, um, 96 years old, mashallah, tabarakallah. But the stark change from last year to this year is remarkable. And we've got to look at how mental health affects the elderly as well as among ourselves. And this, this pandemic, has really thrown up and revealed the extent to which the mental health can deteriorate deteriorate if it's not being addressed, recognised, supported, as it must do. The Dean tells us to take benefit of five, and it talks about our sickness before our, our health before our sickness. And we're told about preserving in another hadith in Tamizi about looking after our bodies and everything. And we're all going to the gym. We're all looking at how we, we want to look buff, and the, the men want the six pack, even if they're 50, in their fifties or forties. The women want to look like they were twenty five years old or, or younger, and everything. Like that. There's not enough focus on the mental health? What about the training of the mind? What about the training of the nurturing of the spirit? What is yeah, very good point. focus on that? Very good point. Very good point, bro. And it's, uh, I was thinking about this as well. It's like the interesting thing is exactly when we think about mental health, like if you see someone who's overweight, yeah, no one says, oh, I have an obesity problem and it's a cop out for them. Right. You understand? It's like, well, OK, if if someone, say, for example, has a um, uh, there's a certain condition, thyroid. Yeah. You have a thyroid condition and like it's literally impossible to lose weight because of your thyroid. condition. But if you're just obese because you eat a lot of takeaways and you don't take any exercise, guess what? I mean, whose fault is that? Right. You understand? You don't you don't have a cop out saying, yeah, I have an obesity problem or I have a whatever. Right. The pro so why is it the same with mental health? I'm not saying all mental health. Right. I'm saying some things that people can take responsibility for. But yet people, it seems to me, often use and we talked about this last week mental health as a cop-out and i'd be very interested to hear what Elias has to say about that see see look i, I think what the lockdown did and what the pandemic has done was just expose the fracture line the mental health crisis has always been there especially in our community 
because I call it the triple whammy of, of Muslim mental health. The one, the stigma and the shame around actually disclosing that you have a mental health problem. The origins of which are often trauma, which is intra-family related. Number two is that the factors which actually cause mental health problems are more prevalent in the Muslim community than any other community. If you look at poverty, if we look at unemployment, if we look at inequality, structural inequality, if we look at Islamophobia, media representation, if we look at identity conflict, cultural crisis, the list goes on. The actual factors which cause mental health distress are more prevalent in our community. And then there's the third part of the whammy, which is the institutionalized racism of the mental health service, the confirmation bias, uh, and and really, it's not unconditional. It's, it's not what we call, uh, you know, uh, un, uh, you know, uh, unwitting. It is witting racism. So, if you're a black and Asian male, you are eight times more likely to be sectioned under the mental health compared to your white counterpart. And what we what I've seen in 30 years, I remember being at the first race and mental health conference in 1991, and now 2021, the pro the situation has not changed. If anything, it has deteriorated. So what we have now is exactly that overrepresentation in crisis intervention and we are not taking responsibility i think as abdurrahim said for our own personal mental health now one of the things one of the reasons why is this almost attitude which is a very stoic attitude in our community and stoicism which is just about internalizing it and not actually expressing the fact out of a sense that this is indicates strength no the best of men the prophet this, this hadith is again groundbreaking. I do a whole lecture on it. And it's the hadith from Ibn Abbas. We said, when, when no, Ibn Abdurrahman Ibn Awf, when the Prophet son, Ibrahim, passed away, the Prophet held him in his arms, kissed him, and he shed a tear. And then Abdurrahman said, what is this Rasulullah? He said, this is rahmah, this is mercy. And he said, the eye sheds a tear, the heart, it has huzn, sadness. But the tongue never utters that which displeases Allah. This is the perfect balance of mind, body, and soul, and mind over matter. So the Prophet allowed the expression of, of sadness and grief. Because what it does is it, it indicates that I'm in a zone of distress, and I need, therefore, people to give me the appropriate social prescription and support in that. The best of men, expressed huzn. And, and through that, he also developed resilience, emotional resilience. And he gave us a vocabulary, an emotional literacy and a vocabulary to do it. So this is extremely powerful. Now, as you mentioned, uh, uh, there is a fundamental racism in the mental health system here, which defines by a Western hegemonic standard about what is normal behavior. And I'm afraid we're all abnormal and I'm proud to be abnormal by this standard. I embrace my abnormality. I embrace my mental illness. I embrace my insanity. And you know, Abdurrahim, I watched, uh, when I saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest when I was about 13 and 14, the, the, the film never left me because it was exactly that. The people who were, and, and this is the thing, uh, well, the people who are defining we are sick, they are the ones who are really sick. You know, and I always say, you know, if, uh, if you know, uh, as that, this quote goes, you know, that schizophrenia is a normal response to a sick society. Or is it a sick response to a normal society? The point in the matter is this. My abnormality, if it is so, is a normal response to a sick society, a materialistic society, an individualistic society, a profoundly supremacist society, a society which went around the world, as Franz Fanon spoke about it. Franz Fanon makes this beautiful quote. It goes like this. Please, people, read Franz Fanon. He is amazing. He's a superhero. Yes, yes, okay. Yes, yes. And uh, what Fanon said, he said, 
we are not fighting because uh, of any culture or any ideology. We fight because we can no longer breathe. Your colonialism has taken the breath from our chests. That's why. And basically, psychiatry, he said, was being used as a tool by the colonial system to suppress. And it still is to this day, by the way, Western mm -hmm. psychiatry. So that's why we need, really need to embrace our own traditions, Eastern, okay, Oriental, Chinese, you know, subcontinent, Islamic, whatever it is, embrace your traditions around mental health and psychology. I want to make a final point. You know, this is something really, this is the science. We never deal with our mental health problems. Our elders never dealt with their mental health problems because of the stigma. So the cortisol levels that build up as a result of the anxiety manifest themselves in what we call physical somatization, physical symptoms. And when we see, when you never deal with your underlying mental health issue, it manifests and it sublimates, we call it, and it's channeled into physical disorders, hypertension, okay, coronary, uh, coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and various other lifestyle disorders and cancers. This is the physical manifestation of unresolved trauma, unresolved mental health issues. And then when we see the comorbidity, that where we see high levels of mortality as a result of COVID on a global level in our communities, do you know what causes the most, uh, you could say, uh, you know weakness of the immune system is the mental state and that's why mind over matter i can prove okay i can prove that that positive mental attitude is able to over is able to boost the physical immune system and overcome real challenges and so you're absolutely see, right see, our, yeah. our tradition sorry our tradition around mental health really is about personal responsibility self-awareness al-furqan ma'rifa real cognition of what change is and the final point which is you know really taking this personal accountability personal responsibility and ultimately being what we call self-reliant in our change so, yeah, yeah. That, that, that last point is the key what you said yeah. exactly yeah. Yeah. talking about now i think yeah. there's an echo yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm speaking um Talking about taking responsibility, then we have to look at those who are unable, incapable of taking responsibility. Okay, we have to look at those because there are those who are unable by virtue of their physiological condition, psychological condition, physical um, condition. So I agree with what you're saying, and what you're saying about schizophrenia and how it's termed and how it's placed on particular ethnicities. And even before we became Muslim, became Muslim, someone who went to your school, Ernest Bevin, one of my, my closest friends when we were making music and everything, and he had a profound um, phrase, and it took me until I was on the dean to review it years later. The term schizophrenia is a black, redemp a black redemption. And I was like, wow. But he was saying that in the context of when psychological issues manifest themselves amongst black com communities that are targeted by institutional racism is often too late when the diagnosis comes about mm. it's once they're dead so that profound statement the term schizophrenia is a black redemption what's the redemption it's when that person has passed when that person has died that's one interpretation at the hands of the institution um that has suppressed and not understood 
until it was too late what they went through. And Hamdan, uh, Mohammed Hamdan put, um, made a statement. If Hassan, if you can put that statement back up again, because I think it's a very, very important statement that he said um, about um, you, some people, you have to embrace insanity if you're going to speak to them. And again, I want us to look at this because then what is the, what, how do we term insanity? Who categorizes, Abdul Rahim, you were speaking about that last week. Yeah, who, yeah, who, yeah. who gives, who decides what insanity is? Who frames that, that um, paradigm in which you're speaking? And as Ilyas said, are we all, that? so we're, we're all, we must all embrace an element of abnormality then because what society is putting out there is abnormal. And everyone else outside of that framework are the ones yeah. who are actually normal. But it's been flipped on its head because it's government, societal, everything. You want to name, we can go into everything, imperialism, Western hegemony. We can talk, even if it's not just talking about West to West, we can talk about Asia, we can talk about Africa, we could talk about what the powers that be do and place upon society and if you do not conform with what they hold to be norms then you are abnormal so yes we have to embrace um, insanity if we're going to speak to each other and Abdurahim, you and me Elias, we we know about that and before i hand back over I'm, i read a book a while ago last year living while black the essential guide to overcoming racial trauma by Gillian um kinawi it's not only a fantastic book but it gives you at the end um, guidelines, notes to make, references. So, for example, chapter one, being black, schooling white black, discovering anti-blackness, white women and liberal racism, because that's where psychological, they come in the cloak of friends and that they are with you. As Malcolm X said, the liberals are as bad as, as the, the, the far right in that instance. We've got black minds, white institutions. What Ilyas is speaking about at the moment, the paradigm with, with, within which minorities have to be, to be judged. The litmus test for them is a paradigm or is a criteria that does not speak to their own cultural backdrop and reality. Exactly what Ilyas is saying about our ethnicities. You being a white Briton, Abdurrahim, should be able to embrace that. And no one should be telling you that, oh, you've got to be woke and look at all the other cultures and everything like that. Ilyas mm -hmm. should be able to be uh, a British Pakistani and embrace what that means, like me being black British. And the commonality that's there with us is Dean, Sunnah, Tawheed, but also we're British and there are characteristics that are there as well. But what if we have overlaps? What if we have confusion in any of those particular elements? Does that then equate to mental health? Or does that equate, as you were saying last week, Abdurrahim, to just being different? Yeah. Shall I, shall I come in? I'll come inside. Look, you know, one of the, there is a, there's so many points you made there. Yeah. I just want to kind of backtrack a bit. You know, as you said, the, the fundamental institutionalized racism that we have in the mental health service. So in 1999, David Pennett, a Jamaican Rastafarian, died as a result of asphyxiation in a secure unit in Norwich. Last year, Kevin Clark, a schizophrenic African Caribbean male, also died as a result of five people sat on him and restraining him. And unfortunately, it is always going to be black or Asian men who end up being restrained and and dying as a result of, of, uh, of, of you, know, you know. So this wasn't just George Floyd. It was here in the UK as well. Now, 
And then on top of that, it's also the number of suicides that we have in detention. There's a case of five Eritrean refugees who came over. All five of them came together. All five of them, because of the unresolved PTSD that they had, all five of them completed. So it took their lives, unfortunately, one after the other. They were a support network. One killed himself and then the other four killed themselves. So this is a real challenge. Uh, I've just finished a massive project around suicide prevention and uh and you know the work that i do in norway and sweden is always all about working with refugee populations around suicide prevention in, in particular so this is a massive global kind of crisis about what's going on there and we need to wake up now there is a particular trauma model in our community this is unique to the muslim community i'm afraid and it comes there are three elements of trauma that we all experience we experience trauma as a result of islamophobia and this kind of rejection that we have on a global level in terms of Islam. Then we have a cultural conflict within our own cultures and, and societies as well, because there's, a, there's an incompatibility and very negative social control from powerful elements within our own cultures that work against us. And, uh, and then there's also just the general racial trauma and social uh, kind of societal trauma. That we're so there are many levels of that trauma. We are not even talking about it let alone dealing with this as, as an issue. And, and, and I'm going to talk towards the end about solutions and interventions. But the mere fact that we don't even recognize the level of mass trauma, I believe there's mass trauma in our communities. I really do. I'm not exaggerating it. And I'm saying 90% of people never address the issue, never resolve the particular issue. Now, going back onto the real point that the question that was made about our own insanity, you're absolutely right. You know, I've been in very dark places in my life. You know, the reason I became a psychologist at the age of 14 is because I was in a very dark place. I talk about my self-harm. I talk about what I went through. Uh, and uh, and that's the reason I wanted to become a psychologist, so that no other child or no other young person would experience what I went to, through and be alone and isolated. And, and the reality of the matter is, I just did a calculation today, and I've done a calculation on, on our national Muslim community. We have 3.5 million Muslims in the UK. 67% of them are under the age of 25. That roughly works out to about 2.7, something 5 million, yeah? Okay, you know, 67% under, under age. So roughly around just over 2 million. One in six of those have a diagnosable mental health problem, which roughly works out to about half a million, let's just say. Half a million of our young people currently in the UK have a diagnosable mental health problem. Of that, not even 10% seek help. That means 90% of them are suffering in silence. 90% of them are self-medicating, are engaging in addictive behaviors, risky behaviors, are somehow just living with it, are never talking about it. And I have clients who are in their 50s and 60s, and the first time that they ever talk about their mental health distress, their trauma, their ups and downs is because of that. And that's why it's so important, you know, to destigmatize mental health in our community, just as the Prophet did when the woman came to him and he said, you are a woman of paradise, the woman who had epilepsy. He did not denigrate her. He did not stigmatize her. He did not say it was Ayn Sihar or Jinn. He diagnosed epilepsy 1400 years ago and he made it very, very clear. I'll make dua for you so that Allah gives you shifa and that you don't become uncovered in this. He gave her social prescription. He gave her social connection. He made her feel, he elevated her. He did not denigrate her. He did not say, you're crazy, this and that. Because everyone goes through an oscillation and a fluctuation in their states of mind, body, and soul. That's Ilyas, the Ilyas. Yeah, yeah. On, on, on that, that point, point, I want us to really make things 
um, I think we're, we're gelling in what we're saying, Abdurrahim including. He needs to come in with his, his usually profound insights. But on what you're saying there, on the, um, that the hadith for the Prophet and and what we should be looking at as well. And from this book that I'm reading, one of the action points that she puts down is, and it's in line with the Dean, practice gratitude. And she says there briefly, trauma makes us sensitive to possible threats in our environment. This focus on our disposition to notice things that are threatening and painful can contribute to emotional distress and keep our internal world out of balance. We need to be conscious and deliberate in paying attention to the little things that make life worth living, the things we are grateful for amid the injustice. Furthermore, practicing gratitude is linked to better well-being. So one of the things that I think that we as Muslims and what you mentioned about the Muslim community is very important. And I think generally for us as individuals, but if we show true gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if we show that true gratitude in the little things, when we wake up in the morning, there's adhkar, we praise Allah for being able to wake up. We know that he talks about taking the souls at night. Some people don't wake from sleep, okay? If you go to bed um, at night safe, we got we make the dua for gratitude we wake up in the morning if you've got your limbs about you you've got a roof over your head and um and you're safe then you are there's wealth in that so taking from the little things and not only do we want to talk about identifying these problems i think we want to try and highlight here what we could be doing from the dean those little steps continuous aspects of worship gratitude and loving ourselves, because one of the things that we are shown in society is to externally reference. And we never look inwardly and love ourselves as the Dean allows us to, and as we should, because we know that negative energy, we know that hating, self-loathing, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, Ilyas, self-loathing, it causes stress. You spoke about diabetes type two, um, uh, uh, hypersense um blood blood diseases and illness there are other things as well and, and i don't mind sharing i have been in hospital four or five times in the last 18 90 well longer than that 30 years and had four kidney stone removal operations and in every single instance i was told it was because of stress so as mm. you said Elias, that these things manifest themselves on you physically okay if the mental aspect is not being taken care of so i'll, I'll go abrahim i want to ask your your opinion on that so gratitude in these little things loving yourself not becoming vainglorious and arrogant but loving the micro achievements that you've done something some find it difficult to get out of bed in the morning the fact you've been able to get out of bed in the morning and dress your children dress yourself have a healthy meal get out then if you're Muslim and you're finding that struggle, then one of the things we need to do that we do little, if you want to, if you're happy about something and you know that Allah has enabled you to do that, stop, get on the floor, onto your knees, put your head onto the mm -hmm. ground, do sajda shukr. Thank you, Allah, for whatever that thing is that you are grateful for. How many of us do sajda shukr? How many of us do it? Often, if we were showing that gratitude and that feel-good factor in ourselves for the small achievements, mm. we'd be operating in such the shukr very, very regularly. And it wouldn't just be during our five daily salah if we're struggling to do even those. 
Yeah, bro. I mean, what you said, mashallah. I mean, I can really, you know, I really relate to the issue of stress. I get stressed really, really. I think I mentioned this last week as well. I get stressed very, very easily. I'm, I have a very low tolerance for stress um, in the sense that it, it really affects me. You know, I can actually just shut down sometimes. But um, I think, yeah, what you mentioned is, you know, I mean, there obviously there are just things that are little. They are little things, but they're not little in the actual. No impact that they have right so there's things that you can do they are little but the impact of them is absolutely huge and absolutely right. one of those things is i mean for me the the key things are um very much living in the present i'm a person who lives in the moment now i mean but it's probably almost to the extent that i have a mental health problem <laughs> because literally I struggle to remember any dates, anything that is like anything from the past. It's almost as if it barely exists. Yeah. Um, so like I like if I have to anyway, it's I really struggle with it because I literally and I, I try not to really worry about the future, uh, except, of course, the future that is going to we're going to encounter when we meet Allah on the day of judgment. And it reminds me of a hadith, you know, where um, that mentions that um, that whoever worries about the things of this world, Allah does not care which valley of worry he leaves that person in. But whoever makes all of their worries into one worry, Allah will take care of all of their worries. Yeah. So I do think definitely thinking, you know, focusing your concern on the akhirah, right? Worrying about what is going to happen when you meet Allah um, actually really has positive outcomes in terms of your overall mental health and well-being. Uh, and another thing, here's a, I, I'd be really interested to hear what Ilyas has to say about this. Yeah, this is my like my pet theory at the moment. Right. So one of my pet theories about um, about mental health, and I don't mean the things we're talking about, genuine problems, you know, like you know like obviously there are people who are have genuine problems from the point of view of you know something's literally if you have half your brain missing or it doesn't even need to be half your brain but obviously there is i'm not talking about that type of thing right mm. but um but when we talk about many of the things that we think of as mental health problems they seem to be things that are very very connected to our very comfortable Western lifestyle. And it's very interesting that you don't seem to find that people um, who are living on the brink of existence suffering from those problems. And I'm going to give you an example, right? I'm going to give you an example. In the same year, I think it was the same month, two stories came out. Number one, the death of a pop singer called Amy Winehouse, right? I don't want to speculate on how she died but anyway you know you can see her life despite all of her wealth and everything was not a happy one right the same time we heard about a woman from somali right who walked for two weeks in the desert with her children and her children died not all of them but you know some of them died on the way she had no food I don't even know how much water she had. She walked for two weeks, right, to survive. So we have someone 
killing themselves who's got everything. And we find a woman who is fighting just to live. And this is one of the things that I say is, I say one of the things that I think the real problem is, is that when you really don't know how precious life is, when you really have this very comfortable existence, there are many, many, in fact, maybe even most of the mental health problems that people have. It's just because you've got too much time on your hands. You've got so much time, <laughs> literally, that's it. If you were fighting for survival, you would not have mental health problems. You wouldn't have time to have mental health problems. You wouldn't. You'd be just too busy trying to live from one day to the next. And that's why one of my prescriptions that I believe is really useful is for people who suffer uh, from some mental health problems is to do some crazy stuff. And I don't mean like crazy stuff like, you know, <laughs> I mean, do some crazy stuff like skydiving, mountain biking, climbing, stuff where you literally, you, you okay, look. When you're riding you're Ilias, you're just, you're just, mountain bikers back in the days, when you're riding a mountain bike, the likelihood of you dying is very, very, very small. But you really feel like I think I think I think look, you yeah. do not want to substitute one addiction with another addiction. With it's removing, addiction, bro. No, it's, it's, it's about it's what, about savoring the reality. I know, but of, of the Raheem, what's the going reality. on with mountain Okay, what's going on with mountain bike? Why not, bro? No, it's no, what's going addiction. on? With, yeah, yeah, what's it's going on with mountain biking? Good. Yeah, no, but there's three yeah. things going on with mountain biking because I've been biking with you. The first is yeah. the social connection. The second well, is the is connection. There, is something wrong with that? No, no, no. I'm saying these are the positive things. It's not the behavior. Oh, yeah. in it. It's not the biking yeah. in itself. It's not the skydiving in itself. It's what what's really happening is your natural. You're you're raising your serotonin levels naturally through positive social connections, through connection with nature. And through yeah. elevating your physical state as well, connection with your physical body, you've got your blood pumping, and this in itself is elevating your. So that's really what's going it's on. A bit more. There's a bit more to it than that. You know, and and you know, you're right. You're yeah. feeling alive. But building on your point, why is it that the prognosis for serious mental illness is better in developing so-called developing countries than it is in the Western industrialized countries? This is really important, and it, it it's a lot to do with social connection. They found that individuals with schizophrenia had a better prognosis in Tanzania compared to London. Why? This is, this is the research. Because what it is, is there is a holistic solution where the whole village comes together to provide a social prescription to support the individual to overcome it. And they're doing so through powerful what we call behavioral activators of faith, of spirituality, of higher purpose, of existential purpose, of social connection with the tribe. And they found that individuals recovered better compared to the individualistic, medicalized model that we find in Western industrialized countries. So there is more resilience in those countries. I've just come back from Sweden, and you're right, it has one of the highest suicide rates in the world, okay, amongst white Swedes, because there is just a fundamental absence of existential purpose. And people realize that, you know, they, 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 they view life in the purely materialistic terms. And you're right, you know, that that woman who is she's still going through stress and anxiety and mental health difficulties yeah, yeah. and trauma let's not minimize it you know go, you know getting on a dinghy with your family to cross the english channel in the middle of the night is is, is scarcely living daylight cool, yeah, you know yeah. and the, the mere fact that they're doing that but what what's interesting is how they frame it 
and they frame it in terms of you're right understanding the law of cause and effect understanding that you know what life is about what the purpose of life is and all of these things so there's a powerful framing in the same way the prophet gave us the powerful framing he went through so many hardships and difficulties and challenges showed so much emotional resilience because framing it in terms of fundamental existential purpose that's why we call this branch of psychology existential psychology and it comes back onto an abundance mindset of gratitude give shukr allah gives you more because you know that hadith how wonderful is the life of the believer everything that happens to you in your life is good that's the believer's mindset and and i always say you know i look abdurrahim you and i all of us here we have challenges we have stresses we have anxieties we've experienced bereavement we've experienced loss we've experienced you know real challenging situations but you know what it is is what's what's really important is that all of us i think still have this sense that how amazing allah has blessed us in our life with the wonder of the life yeah, that we yeah. have and that's Absolutely. really the balancing act of mind over matter because on a cognitive le le level, I, I, you know, and I say this, I am the most blessed man on the face of this earth. Allah Akbar, really. I can't believe how Allah gave me such a wonderful, amazing life. Truly. So whenever there is a difficulty, it's trivial compared to the overall purpose that I have in my life. When I work with an addict, the fundamental thing that I'm trying to do is get them to recognize that dynamic. Because when they have that purpose, when they have that significance, when they have that, you know, core, those core values, then everything that happens in their life is insignificant in comparison. That's the key. But those individuals who don't have that, they never recover. That's that, that's that's at the heart of it. And one of the amazing things about our religion, Allahu Akbar, is this. You know, look at Ramadan. Look at Ramadan, yeah? Ramadan, you know, as you know, is mind over matter. And it's a proof, it's a hujjah against us, I always say. That I can fast for up to 20 hours a day without food, water, without the things which we abstain from because of Iman. No other reason because of Iman. It shows, it's a proof that whenever I apply how powerful, we haven't even touched on the neuro, on, 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 on neurological science and how powerful the brain is. The most powerful instrument in the world is the brain. And that mind over matter allows us to withhold for 20 hours you know and just to prove it that's why i'm this week i'm doing a i'm going to do a four-day water fast that's no food at all for four days only water and electrolyte that's all i'm having for four days i'm not doing it as a religious act of i'm doing it purely to prove mind over matter that so i can yes, do it. Yes. yeah yes two points um, Ibtisan has just mentioned the point there, which is, I think, is the fundamental um, axis upon which is what you're speaking to. Understanding, that's the key word. When she understood what Allah expected, the whys of our existence, that's when she became stronger, alhamdulillah. And it's speaking to exactly what you're, you're saying at the moment now. Okay, Abdurrahim is indicating that he's, his mum's getting anxious and um, yeah. it's again, mind over mind. And and so um, if if Ilya, yeah, if I, think in this, I think in this particular case, it's yeah. Um, if, if you if you need to to depart soon, so we won't yeah, keep yeah. much longer. But the point here is, if we understand truly the purpose of our creation, 
we understand it, which is to worship Allah, okay? And what that worship entails, not just the rituals, what that entails, then in Allah, we will find solace and rest. And it, some might think, oh, this is really um, nice and fluffy what's being said. Try it. Try it. Abdurrahim, Ilyas. Abdurrahim, I know you have to go, but I want to make a quick point to you as well. Yeah, please, you know, yeah. One of the things which has kind of almost uh, confounded us is Maslow's hierarchy of need. You see, the Anbiya and the Rusul have a reverse hierarchy of need. You know, the pyramid um, goes yeah. that way. The, the Anbiya and the Rusul is this way, by the way. Yeah. They start mm -hmm. off with self-actualization and fundamental purpose, and they don't right. have a need. They don't you have a need for any of the rest. So the deception. Do you remember that talk I used to give, Ilyas? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember yeah. that talk? I, I, I do. I think I remember you used to say that. Yeah. yeah. And the whole point was, I was thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I thought, isn't it extraordinary though that there are hum many human beings who are act will actually deprive themselves of food and drink and shelter in order yeah. to feed a drug addiction? And what yes. is that drug addiction about? I, it's not a physical thing. It's a it's it's, it's trying to fill absolutely. a mental spiritual void. So mm. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is I'm sorry, but and this is goes back to what we were saying last week. Mm. The Western model, if they don't understand what a human being is, which they don't, they don't understand what a human being is. They don't know what human beings are. Right? We we are created to worship Allah, and if you don't know that. You know nothing. Literally, of course, you're going to be miserable if you are not fulfilling your created purpose. Of course, you're going to have mental health issues if you're not fulfilling your created purpose. So then that's that's what I was. The whole premise of assessing mental health is based on what? <laughs> it is. And Abdurrahim, they either, as you said, you don't know yourself. You externally reference. You don't know your purpose. We spoke about it before. Abdurrahim, remember in Hyde Park, you were the one who first coined this. You were speaking to a young lady. You and me were there, usual crowd and everything. And you asked her, she was a confident individual. You may not remember until I tell you, you said, yeah. um, you asked her about the garments she was wearing. And yeah, she explained yeah, yeah. everything. She explained all of them right down the bag, she, handbag she had in her hand and everything. And then you yeah. asked her and she was silenced. The first time she was silenced then what is your purpose? Yeah. And then she went quiet and you didn't humiliate her. We never do that, I hope, inshallah. But you said to her, how come you know the purpose of everything you're wearing and all the items I've asked you for, and they're dead, but you are living yeah. and you don't know your own purpose. So it comes back to that in knowing your role in this life and society knowing and facilitating that which the society we're living in from the West now is not doing that. As much as people will say, no, we're living longer, we can do more, we can satiate desires, we can do all of this. No, that is perpetuating mental health issues because we are a people who are in need of guidance. We are a creature that is in need of guidance, which is divine guidance. If it's misguidance, it always ends up in tragedy. It might be a temporary gain. It may be a lifetime of, of desire, um, sat satisfying desires. But psychologically, we know, and the proof and the evidence is there, that we are in a vacuum. We are in, uh, um, we are in uh, 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 an abyss of loss. And while you might have millions and thousands of followers or whatever, 
you are in that abyss alone and you go deeper into it the more you depend on the accolade of individuals or people the masses or you externally reference to others so if we don't know ourselves and our per fundamental purpose then have knowledge that none deserves to be worshipped except Allah then these we're seeing this the world is in a state at the moment and Muslims who are looking elsewhere are also in a state at the moment and it comes back to that example you gave Abraham why did that woman walk for two weeks she lost some of her children on the way but she wanted to live because living and the life we've got is given to us. What we do with our health, and I want, I'll clue, conclude on this point briefly, if I may. The khutbah that I was listening to yesterday, mashallah, tabarakallah, we have to, we will be questioned about what we did with our bodies, and we will be questioned about what we did with our minds. And we need to make sure that we are doing the right things with our mind as much as we are doing with our bodies. We feed as we feed our bodies, but we don't feed our souls correctly. We don't feed our minds correctly. And we wonder, and remember, these are all three aspects. The physical, the mental, and the spiritual are, have to be in sync with each other. And mashallah, he's had to go, um, but we still have our, our brother Ilyas with us. And we, because of the importance of the subject and alhamdulillah, now Abdurrahim has gone to tend to his mother. Okay. As we know from last week, there are some health issues there. There are some mental um, issues there with age. I mentioned a family member and my friend who I spoke to yesterday, whose father's now suffering from dementia. So we're seeing that within our parents. So he's done the right thing. And he's gone to attend to his family, Jazakallah here. And that comes to a point where he was mentioning about doing these so-called crazy things. And um, Ilyas, you mentioned about it was to do with bonding. And I want to read another action point on that, where we're told here about strengthening attachment with family, within the family. Connection and solid bonds act as protection from toxic environments. They also communicate to us that we are worthy of love, care and attention and encourage a child for example to feel safe enough to come to you with their distress we can all improve the quality of our bonds if we commit ourselves to doing so connection relies on first and foremost making time for bonding it relies on seeing and hearing the other and tapping into our capacity to show compassion to one another including towards children and I'm going to add this, finish this part here with this action point, Ilyas. And she then goes on to say, human touch, okay, which some many of us have been deprived of now with friends and colleagues because of the social distancing. But human touch, eye contact, and active listening help most children feel contained. Make a connection action plan with your children your, and your loved ones. Ensure you regularly engage and focus on connecting and making them feel heard and seen. Ilyas, you're in the profession of your psychologist. How much, and I, from the, me being chairman of a mosque and, and advising and people approaching, when somebody comes and you just listen. Absolutely. Even online, socially, and they know you do are you know, just... You know what, absolutely. Do you know one of the amazing things about the... You had such a high level of what I call emotional intelligence. 
Yes. Yeah, it wasn't even a case of what we call empathetic or active listening. He read the face. There's a very well-known hadith of Abu Hurairah who was hungry. He went to Abu Bakr on the pretense, asked him a question. Abu Bakr just radiallahu just answered the question. Likewise, Umar. He then he was he was ashamed, he was embarrassed to say I'm hungry. He approached the Prophet on a pretense to ask a question. The Prophet said, he said, be quiet. He called for the goat to be brought. He milked it and and then he filled the bowl. Ahl Sufa all drunk to their fall. And then Abu Huraira was the last to drink, and he drunk. He said, "He said I wasn't anxious because the milk. I wanted to put my mouth where the Prophet put his mouth." That's anyway, right. the point here is, is, this is about reading. The Prophet read it, saw it. That's the how level, how high the level of emotional intelligence. So, whilst we have this very important discussion around existential purpose and and fundamental, uh, you know, our fundamental maqsad or objective, which is to worship Allah. Let us not use this as a cop-out to actually recognize we still have to provide mental health support right. and do it through the ways. Now, Abdul Haq, one of the really challenging disorders that we have in our community is attachment disorder. And it comes from a breakdown in parental attachments, okay, which then fracture in teenage years and our children start leading what we call double life syndrome. And you're right. we, you know, And for those people who sent me emails on the Resilient Dads program, where we cover all of these issues around attachment disorder and attachment parenting and authoritative parenting, the, 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 cl the classes will be beginning in January and inshallah I have your emails and I will keep you on the email list when we start our sessions in January inshallah so you're absolutely right there is a fundamental need for human belonging and attachment and compassion and connection with that and the thing about the family that the quote mentioned is sometimes unfortunately the family is the source of toxicity and trauma true, true, so therefore true. that's why Abdul Haq as you know gangs and cults and groups and dysfunctional spaces provide the substitute family that people are looking for because of their desperate need to have this attachment to a father figure, to a, a family, to have what we call, what Carl uh, Rogers called unconditional positive regard, unconditional acceptance, love. To have that love. And right. that love is the most powerful right. draw, in the world, draw, draw in the world. And the Prophet Salam's approach to dealing with mental health was with Rahmah with mercy and compassion that elevated, as I said, the woman who came to me, she was elevated, not denigrated, right, not stigmatized right. and not judged and nor labeled, you know, because this is the reality of, of, of individuals. So now one of the things I think is really important that now in terms of moving forward and being proactive, although we need to have dementia friendly mosques, we need to have mental health friendly mosques, where, and, and alhamdulillah, just to give you, I did a training session for our brothers in Stoke on Trent today for the mosque, uh, all the mosque and faith leaders. I do a, a two weekends, it's a four hour program around mental health awareness around them for imams and faith leaders to provide pastoral care and support around mental health issues. But we need this to be a national program in the UK and on a global level, because as I said, mental health is core to spiritual health. Right, you know, right. we have the concept of mental incapacity to be majnoon. We have that. We have this definition. Why? Because when the person is men mentally doesn't have capacity, the Sharia is suspended for them from, from yes, them. Yes. And and that's why in al khamru wal maisru wal ansabu, you know, this thing ridsum in amli shaitani fajtani buhu alakum tuflihun that khamr and uh, uh, al khamr gambling and alcohol and gambling both of them are haram. Why and forms of shirk as well, Islam was, uh, you know, Ansab. Why? Because both of them obviously cause an addiction to dopamine, 
both of them cause an, a loss of mental capacity and as a result of that a uh, you know it diminishes your spirituality and your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so what we need to do is now recognize that ment good mental health and preserving the mental state is called to preserving the spiritual state this whole issue around ex-Muslims that we have in the moment and we have so many young Muslims now who are no longer identifying with Islam it isn't because they've intellectually embraced atheism and that they've rejected Islam on an ideological and theological level no, most of them don't even know it's actually the it's, it's, it's the mental health trauma that I'm talking about it's the lack of compassion within our community it's the lack of connection that they have with the masjid, with the faith leaders, with imams, with Islamic scholarship, with the Quran, with the Sunnah, these are the things which cause the disconnect. So, and the first slide, um, yeah, uh, yes. um, excellent what you said. The flip side of what you mentioned is those who dive into religion, converts, mm -hmm. with those who um, revert, and those who have cognitive openings. And then they dive into the religion and become excessive. You know my four-stage cognitive development framework I've given. And so individuals will mask that mental health issue they've got by seemingly becoming more religious, astute, dogmatic, dogmatic judgmental, castigating others which is reprehensible and unacceptable. But we've got to understand as well, not make excuses for them, because we've seen individuals do that and browbeat others to the extent that they've left the Dean. But we see now that some of those individuals are basically masking their own mental health issues. And unfortunately, we promote these individuals and these entities and these and facilitate them because we're thinking that they're seemingly becoming more religious. They, they're adhering to Quran and Sunnah and that's all they seem to breathe and speak and everything like that. And they've changed from their previous personality of non-practicing Muslim or non-Muslim. And what we're doing is we're facilitating or exacerbating the mental health deterioration of that individual and given the impression that embracing the deen and becoming as religiously astute as them and in inverted commas, behaviorally extreme as they are, is meritorious. Now that's not in every case. There are those who generally embrace religion and become a religion, but we've got to be careful that we're only looking at one trigger of those who are leaving the deen, those who are, um, are, are being marginalized because of their apparent mental health, but we're not looking and we're possibly promoting others who have that same mental health issue, but they've just masked it with the Dean. Uh, absolutely. It's reactionary behavior. And, and you're right. People think that just because someone's more observant and they've become fervent and they've become passionate and almost extreme in the matter, yeah, that this is a normal. No, this is absolutely not normal behavior at all. This is extreme reactionary behavior. And people then flip out. And it's really bizarre when they flip out. Then everyone just turns their back on them and yeah. say, oh, well, they weren't a proper Muslim in the beginning. So this is part of the mental health crisis, unfortunately, that we have in our in our community with this extreme reactionary behavior. So look, I, th I think, you know, what, what's really important is this. This conversation, I'm having much more, more and more. I think I've been, the last five years, there has been an awakening in our community around mental health. 
we're having this conversation more. We're having more practitioners in the mental health system who are working in an Islamic-centered way, who are not just consuming in an uncritical way Western psychiatry, uh, Western Eurocentric medical model psychiatry, but are really taking a, a holistic Islamic spiritual model, which is brilliant, alhamdulillah. So we're finding more of this. We haven't even touched on the issues around Sihr Ain and Jinn and how these can play, but maybe that's another show. It's a big show in itself. Maybe we'll leave that for another occasion. Of course, the whole of the Dean is what we call a positive behavior activator. So that what it does is that it enables us to fundamentally affect that cognitive process, yeah? So when we pray, it's more than just Salah. Obviously, it's a deep mind and soul connection that's taking place, which is obviously elevating the human being. I just want to finish with what we, I was saying is that these are the four fundamental connections that enable a person to overcome mental distress. The first is purpose. We've touched on this, understanding our fundamental purpose. Then the second is people, connecting with a community of compassion, a community of brotherhood and sisterhood, a community of support, a community of assistance, a community that helps to, to like I said, helps us in our difficulties. And just as the Prophet said, visit your brother and sister when they are sick. It's interesting, we know how to deal with physical illness, but not mental illness. That's an interesting thing. So first is purpose. Number two is people. Number three is practice. I call them P's today. Yeah? And that means that your daily routine, and I want everyone to realize this, your daily routine as a Muslim should be structured, should be disciplined, should be purposeful, should be meaningful. Your work is halal. Your leisure is halal. Your interactions are halal. So, so, so this is what we mean by practice. And of course, the five daily salah structure our day so that we have a balance between deen and dunya, between this world and the next world, and we maintain our spiritual connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we have to engage. We have to engage in what I call meaningful, purposeful work, education, learning, and activity. So we've got purpose, we've got people, and we've got practice. And the third connection is peace, in nature we have to connect with the natural world around us we have to engage and we have to be part of some people you know there's interesting theories in what called the circadian rhythms the seasonal rhythms that we have to even our salah actually allows us to have a balance with the circadian rhythms which is the daylight and the nighttime hours the point i'm making here is this get out there go into blue spaces and green spaces Go walk in nature, feel the rain, the snow on your face. Right, right, okay, right, right. you know, connect with what Allah Ta'ala Rabbil Alameen has created and say Alhamdulillah. Right, Connection right. with nature is so fundamentally important. Get out there, breathe, exercise, get out there, walk, do your 10,000 steps. Alhamdulillah. And these Allah, are Allah, the Allah, وإلى الجبال كيف نسبت وإلى الأرض كيف um sorry سطيات فطيات I've forgotten the ayah as I'm just it's just come to me now but have you not seen how Allah has raised the the firmaments has he has spread the earth Allah questions us with a view to looking at His creation so I'm just trying to endorse excuse me for those who know Quran and I've just forgotten the ayah but Allah says this throughout the the Quran about looking at his creation, reflecting, pondering. And those of you who do that, those of us who do it, it does nothing but bring tranquility, humility, sakina, solace, awe, admiration, 
the psychological replenishment that you feel, not just from the physical fresh air and oxygen you're breathing in, but from that psychological um, uh, refreshing nourishment that takes place in the, the instance. Every one of us, Muslim and non-Muslim, know what Ilyas and I are speaking about at this particular point here. We are living in societies where we seldom look up at the sky and we're surrounded by high rises or gray buildings or, or, or human creation, aspects of human creation. We, we seldom find a green or blue space that is vast. If you can't move out to the countryside or visit or whatever, go to one of the commons or parks that are around you and just look at the, the beauty that's there and just ponder, don't do anything else. Don't take your mobile phone and don't live through your mobile phone. How many times do we go to these, these places, these, um, these um, geogra geographical destinations and we are looking at them through the lens of our phone. We're not living in that moment. Live in the moment. Maybe take a picture or a video after you have lived the moment. But don't pull out your phones immediately because when you look into your phones when you get home, you would not have lived the moment. So Ilyas, I had to interject there because what you're saying about that nature and that connection, that peace and tranquility through nature is so, so important. And I'm going to let you have the last word. I just want to uh, answer. And, 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 and obviously physical exercise is another really important aspect of yes. nat naturally elevating your, you know, your serotonin, your dopamine, your norepinephrine, all of your kind of you know, neurotransmitters. Now, yes, good. I, 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 just, I just want everyone, the final point I want to make is this, you know, subhanAllah, Islam of gay, you know, and the Quran and the Sunnah, you don't realize how amazing it is in terms of the guidance that it gives us on mm. all the contemporary challenges that we have. It's just that we become disconnected from the contemporary application of that. I, I did my master's in psychology in 1990, Abdul Haq, and as soon as I did it, people said, haram, haram, haram. Even though I read an amazing book by Dr. Now, Professor Malik al-Badri, I just came across it in the library. It was called The Dilemma of the Muslim Psychologist. And he spoke about the Islamic tradition. And that's the first time, 1986, I picked up this book accidentally in the library. And I thought, wow, Islam has a tradition around psychology? Amazing. And if it wasn't for that, then, and that's why I've always taken this, my particular methodology around psychology. And when I always used to hear people immediately saying, haram, 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 that in itself, kind of reflects the dilemma that we have. We have this reactionary behavior and then we don't realize actually, you know, the aql al-aql, ya'aqilun, inna fi thalika ya'alamun. Throughout the Quran, these are signs for those people of intellect, of understanding, of aql, the mental state is, is mentioned throughout the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and preserving the aql, the intellectual state. In fact, Ibn al-Qayyim said the greatest blessing in, in the book Tilbis Iblis, he said the greatest blessing is al-aql, because through al-aql we perceive the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and enters into the heart. He also says that, you know, that, uh, you know, knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more precious than the air we breathe and the water we drink, because obviously without those we are no longer able to live, but we die with knowledge. Allah Akbar. So existential purpose. It's all there in the books of Ilm al-Nafs, Islamic psychology. So that's, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the quote, please elaborate on the point that becoming so religious that it becomes a bad thing. What we're talking about is ghulu. We're not talking about being religious and upon wasipiyya yeah. and upon spiritual right. bad. Right. 
Right. We're talking about hulu going to extremes in matter, which therefore destroy the individual and then cause them to obviously, you know, not. As Allah says in the Quran, لا تغلو في دينكم and the other Prophet said, سددوا وقربوا be steadfast, be moderate. وكذلك جعلناكم أمة وسطة and follow the middle path. So that's what we're talking about here in this matter. So just to finish with this, yeah, that you know we have our tradition and uh, of ilm al-nafs, and that's the methodology that we use. Number two point, I want everyone to realize here, you don't realize how powerful the brain is and how powerful an idea is. An idea is a chemical reaction that takes place when two neurons fire and create a synapse. And it's an idea that changes the world. Read in the name of your Lord who created you, Islam came to the Prophet ﷺ in a cognitive state first and then it became a reality. Yeah, the point I'm making is you don't realize how powerful the brain is as an instrument, the most powerful instrument in the world. You know, people are getting so kind of excited. Oh, I can get one gig uh, uh, 5G now, one gig 5G. And basically what that means is 1,000 uh, megabits of information per second, yeah? You know your brain is currently doing 500 million megabits of information per second? The fastest we can even come to is one gig, one million megabits of information. Your brain is doing 500 million megabits of information per second. That's how much, and only 10% of it is conscious, 90% of it is unconscious because of you can't bring it into the consciousness, all of the processes that are operating with regards to the brain. Mind over matter. You know, Allah Akbar, if you truly make align your thoughts with your beliefs, and your behavior, nothing can stop you from achieving anything Nothing can stop you. As I said, I challenge myself, or uh, mind, body, and soul, I challenge myself purely and simply to stretch the limits of mind and matter. You know, I've, I've today, guys, I've been fasting today for 21 hours, no food, alhamdulillah. Doesn't even affect me whatsoever. I'm going to go for a four. I'm going to try to go for at least five or six days. See how long I can go without any food for four or five days, and that's just water I have for four or five days, just to to push mind over matter, to become. Uh, can I, can I yes. Yeah. On that, and I know you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Um, um, those who want to elevate themselves in that way, Ilyas is doing that for me, and he said he's not doing it from a religious perspective, but he and I would agree all of us should agree if you then want to raise yourself in particular aspects spiritually then following the sunnah of the prophet with regards to the fast outside of ramadan okay um and if you want and mashallah some of us are doing that to add to that to at least once or twice a week add the fast of dawood and i spoke to a student of knowledge on how to do this so to do the Monday and Thursday fasts, okay? Then not to fast on the Fridays, Juma, but then to fast on the Saturday because you're connecting it with the Thursday. And then fasting again on the Monday. That means you would have incorporated the fast of Dawood, which was the alternate days, and you would have the Monday and Thursday. And then on top of that, while you're doing that, See what happens is you all know when you fasted in Ramadan, those non-Muslims who are watching, join work with us. But there's a difference there because you have to have belief and Iman and faith in Allah to really appreciate the level that you will rise to spiritually and mentally when you are fasting, knowing 
above that, not just a physical act, the, the closest, the, the act of fasting, Allah says, this is for me. And I will therefore reward the person because every other act of worship that we do as Muslims can be seen by others. Charity, prayer, reciting Quran, all, all the other acts can be seen and possibly polluted because our intention may change because someone's watching us or we're doing it for somebody or we're doing it for something or we're doing it for show. But the fasting, only Allah knows that you are fasting in actuality. So we're ending on this point here, but fasting according to the sunnah for mental health, if all the conditions, Ilyas mentioned, Absolutely. aligning the mind with your purpose and with every aspect that is related to this religion, and know with yakin that you will be able to address, it won't always disappear, <laughs> but you will be able to better address mental health issues. Alhamdulillah. Sheikh, I just want to say that, you know, let's look after each other. Let's look after each other's mental health. Support each other. You know, don't stigmatize each other. Don't judge each other. Everyone goes through difficulties and challenges. People keep mm. it in so much because of the shame and, and the stigma associated with it. Right. And don't also just give platitudes. It's or This is a fob off. Now, let me tell you, you know, you may say to a person and because, you know, it's bad enough going through mental health challenges, but then be, to be told that you're a bad Muslim because Muslims don't get mental health problems. You don't know whether that person is a bad Muslim or not. You don't know the daily struggle they have. You don't right. know the jihad they've had from the beginning of the day to the end of the day not to take their life. Right. Believe me, you don't know it. Maybe they missed a salah or two. They're making one or two salahs is equivalent to 10 of your salahs. Let me tell you why. Because they had a daily struggle. Right. You don't know the baseline of the individual. You don't know the traumas that they've been through. You don't know the horrors that they've been through. Don't minimize. Don't trivialize. You know when some, something happens in... In Syria or Palestine or any other place, we, you know what, we immediately, oh, what terrible trauma. Just because you don't see the trauma doesn't mean it's not there. Right. So I just want people to look after each other a bit more. Be careful with the words that we use. You know, let me tell you the, the thing that we find most difficult to give uh, Abdul Haq, yeah? We give money very easily, you know, and we can give words very easily. We can't give time to each other. We can't be emotionally present and available for each other. We're not compassionate and caring enough for each other. This is the real... I'm telling you, you want to resolve mental health issues, and you're absolutely right, Abdul Haq, you know? When you truly embrace your brother or your sister, you know, obviously, halal, yeah? And, and you show that real compassion and that real care and that real concern. That's what it's ultimately about, that the right. person feels right. truly... You know, I want to say, you know, trauma. You know, the Prophet, he went through trauma. You don't realize this. He was in a state of shock. He wanted to throw himself off. He got. People don't know this, man. Allah Ta'ala mentions it in the Quran. You know, you, yeah, he mentions it in the Quran. You know, uh, and would you kill yourself because the people are not listening to you? Allah, it's the Rasul, would you kill yourself? Allahu Akbar. 
he came home, uh, Abdul Haq. Zamiluni, Zamiluni, Dathiluni, Dathiluni. Wrap me up, wrap me up, cover me up, cover me up. Khadija wrapped him up. One blanket against her own skin. She gave the Prophet ﷺ body heat. Because when you're in trauma, you're losing body heat. That's why they put the silver blankets on you. You know, when you when you see that in ambulance people come, they put a silver blanket on you. The reflective blanket is to give, to, to no. She shared her body heat with the Prophet ﷺ. He's in trauma. She wrapped him up. She wrapped him up. She covered him up. Two people together in one blanket. And then she reassures him, your Lord will not forsake you. Allahu Akbar. And Ilyas, on that, okay, I know we're saying we're going to conclude, but this brings the next thing. Yeah, yeah. I was advising, um, I was advising uh, my um, executive uh, um, assistant. He's non-Muslim. and May Allah guide him, inshallah. And it was all because of a realization that I had of an ayat that we all know very much as well. And this comes now to speaking to our partners. Allah tells us that we are a garment to each other. And sometimes if we are, and we've done, all done it, we're, we're being persistent in an issue with our wife or our husband. Okay. And in that thing, we're doing that because it irritates us. But we don't know that in that thing, that's a part of her. That's a characteristic of her. That's a characteristic of him. And it's like that part of the garment that is itching, irritating a part of the skin, okay? And the garment may be beautiful, but that part that is irritating the part of the skin, making it become sore, making it become a wound, you and me know ourselves that even if it's a small part of a garment, we will want to get rid of that garment because of the irritation on the arm. So we need to be able to be, and we need to be able to be that garment that, when our partner is insecure and feeling vulnerable, that we wrap tighter around them, a comfort, so they feel secure. We need to be that garment that if we know our garment, we've put on weight, we go to the tailor to open up our garment a little bit more to make it a little wider so that it's not so stifling. We need to then give our partners more space and open up as a garment a little bit more just so they can breathe and have that space and that coolness that they need. So as a garment, when Allah speaks about us being garments for each other, the psychological impact of being that, he doesn't say garments, that you've got your three or four garments, garment. So you've got to be, we've got to be adjustable. We've got to be sensitive. And I'm talking to myself as well. We have to be sensitive to our partners, our wives, our husband's needs and be that garment that is the one that she would want to wear all of the time because it not only beautifies, it not only protects, but it is adjustable, sensitive to her needs, sensitive to his needs. And in doing that, you and I know when we're in a garment, we feel good, we look good, we like how we're portrayed. So that ayah of the Quran, as it relates to us as partners in relationships, we need to understand that for the mental well-being of our wives. And I want to bring something for some of us who are in families where women are older, and I've been reading stuff about this as well. Sometimes some of our wives may be going through menopause. Do we understand what that is? Do we go and talk to them about it? Or do we become that garment detecting change and adjusting accordingly? Sisters, men go through particular psycho uh, stages in our lives as we are getting older. Are you aware of them? Do you become that adjustable garment determining what type of change he is going through 
and adjust him by either wrapping more tightly around him to make him feel secure or do you loosen because he needs a bit of that space psychologically and everything like that but you're still that garment beautifying him so these discussions i'm not an expert i'm speaking from some aspects of experience some aspects of knowledge some aspects of hope and we brought Ilyas on today because he's more experienced than us. Our brother Abdurrahim Green has, has put his profound experiences, his insights, he's asked some questions there. This is a topic that should not just be academic. This is a subject we should switch off from and start implementing and looking after our mental health first and foremost, because if we're not good for ourselves, we won't be fit for anybody else. And those who I have not said um, about those who are up listening now, we've got sisters and brothers in Malaysia and Singapore after three in the morning and everything. We appreciate you listening. You give us strength, brothers and sisters, the compliments, contributions, compliments, criticisms, constructive criticisms you give us, challenges you give us to think about. This is all important because as uh, Elias has said, we need to care more now for each other as a, as, a, as a people. And as an ummah, we need to care more now for the world because we are with a deen that has the solutions to what is going on in the world yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Lala Rook said something, I mentioned something about the next topic. If you can say what you believe that is, and we are happy to um, discuss next week. Tisan, sorry, what is that topic? What did I touch upon? Because we've covered so many things here, and I'm going to let Ilyas have the last word after that, inshallah. So, Tisan, if you're there, what is that subject? And um, Ilyas, please, let's conclude. Chef, I think you've, we've said it all. I think there's so much more to say. I, I, you know, I in Ramadan, I did a series of 13 talks on spirituality and mental health. And, you know, I've been wanting to do a whole weekly mental health series, but just haven't had the time to do it. But inshallah, from next year, I'll be doing a lot more mental health content and I will keep people on, on stream Islam, inshallah. So I'll keep people in the loop on that. Just the final point is this year that we don't have enough mental health, mostly mental health practitioners out there. We need more counselors. We need more therapists. We need more people who are involved in mental health work in our community to provide for the needs of our community. The workforce currently, what do you expect when the workforce is not culturally competent, doesn't understand our community, doesn't understand our faith? We need to train more and more and more and more. Ten years ago we needed it. It's a crisis. It is an absolute mental health crisis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect everybody's mental health, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, preserve our families, our friends, our community. And may Allah Ta'ala, inshallah, enable us to be lil mutakina imama, inshallah, leaders, inshallah, for the righteous, inshallah, ameen. Ameen. Jazakallah khair, Ilyas, and jazakum khair to all of you who have listened. Um, jazakum khair to um, uh, Abdurrahim, who had to leave us early to pay um, attention to his mother's needs, mashallah, tabarakallah. We look forward to seeing you next week and discussing things. And the conversation is going to continue once this show is finished as well. Um, inshallah, yes, Shireen, we will look at continuing this topic. Um, I'll be speaking with Ilyas and Abdurrahim and Brother Hassan, who uh, the host of the show, to see what aspects or angles we may be able to cover next week, inshallah. And until then, 
we look forward to speaking to you. Be safe, take care of yourselves and your mental health. And remember, we take that to Allah first and foremost, inshallah. Jazakum Allah khaira. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.